1: Walking the path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program, and we're in chapter 18 of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This is a seven-month program where I'm walking students through chapter by chapter, and now we're in chapter 18, which is God's creative action. You have free will. This is where you start learning and understanding how you can have a relationship with God and get to enlightenment, or if you're not interested in a relationship with God, not having a relationship with God and still getting to enlightenment. Because God doesn't grant enlightenment, you can either get to enlightenment with a relationship with God or without one. But depending on what you've been taught in the past, depending on what you've been exposed to, there might be certain things that your mind has been conditioned to believe that isn't necessarily true, which might hinder you from having either a healthy relationship with God or not having a relationship with God at all. So I'm going to be helping you to understand these as you go forward in your journey to enlightenment so that you can do things like eliminate your fear if you have fear of God. Or if you have anger and hatred towards God, helping you learn how to eliminate that. Because if you have anger and hatred towards any being at all, you won't get to enlightenment. And if you have any kind of fears at all, including a fear of God, you won't be able to get to enlightenment. But because God doesn't grant enlightenment, you're able to get to enlightenment in either situation. So I'm going to be guiding you in understanding this. And you're more than welcome to read the chapter on this because I go into a lot of detail there. You can download the book from buddhadailywisdom.com, and from there you'll see the link for free books. And Volume 1, Chapter 18, is what we're going to be discussing today. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining for the first time or you've been joining regularly, As we go in today's class, I'll be opening up for questions at different times, and you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. We have a moderator, Chrissy, who's going to be monitoring our platforms, and then as questions come in, she'll read your question for me. But if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions. So I'm going to use a few visual aids here to help us in our class so that I can guide you in understanding the content that's in this chapter 18. And again, it would be really wise to read either before class and or after class. So the way I often like to teach certain topics is I like to start with definitions because depending on what you've been exposed to or how your mind currently thinks, your definition of God, for example, in this case, may be very different than the definition that I have. So in order to come to an understanding, at least on what I'm sharing with you in today's class, it's important for me to define what I'm referring to as God. You may disagree with the definition, but at least you'll understand what I'm speaking about. And then you'll at least understand as I'm going in today's class, how I'm structuring my discussion. And then you can decide whether or not you agree with this definition or not, but at least you have an understanding of where I'm coming from and what I'm sharing. So what I'd like to do is define what God is. To me, the way that I define God in the book and here in the class is the creator of the universe and source of all moral authority, the supreme being. This being is often referred to in other traditions as either God or Allah. We might refer to this being as all-knowing or all-powerful, omniscient or omnipotent. There's other words or phrases or terms that are used to refer to this being that i'm referring to as a supreme being and this being is in the cycle of rebirth just like all the rest of us they're typically associated with the heavenly realm this particular being god during the lifetime of the buddha they believed in multiple gods but it wasn't until later that we actually started to understand that there's one God. And Jesus Christ is the one who brought these teachings to the world and helping people to understand that there's just one God. So there's lots of different thoughts and ideas about what God is or what God isn't. And nowadays, due to the work that Jesus Christ did, there's people who, if they have an understanding of God, will think of God as just one God, but there are still some people in the world who think that there are multiple gods. But here, what I'm referring to is just one God as the creator of the universe and source of all moral authority, the supreme being. They're all-knowing, they're all-powerful, they're omniscient, they're omnipotent, even though other traditions, whether it's Christianity or Muslim teachings or Hinduism or other traditions like Judaism, and they might have different words or terms or phrases that they're referring to this being, it's all pointing to the exact same being, this supreme being. So the next question you might be asking yourself, well, what is moral conduct? Because here I'm saying that God is the source of all moral authority. Well, here, moral conduct you can understand as virtuous behavior, where we maintain or act upon high principles for proper conduct. So God understands this and created the world and the universe in such a way that this virtuous moral conduct is laid out in the way that we all function throughout life and we value people who do not kill other beings. We value individuals who do not steal or have sexual misconduct or lie or take substances that cause heedlessness. We realize that these things are very wise as you learn the teachings and essentially one of the things that a Buddha is doing is during the Buddha's life he laid out a path that explains to you what these wise decisions are based on the natural law of gamma. During the lifetime of the Buddha, he didn't try to prove or disprove whether God exists or doesn't exist. He did talk about God, which we're going to discuss here in a moment. But a Buddha is describing these natural laws of what exists in the world. And then as you gain wisdom on that through learning, reflecting, independently verifying and practicing, now you can see these universal truths, these natural laws of existence, you can start to understand them. And now with that wisdom, you can start making wiser decisions that lead to more wholesome outcomes. So it's important to understand that we have free will. Oftentimes when people think about God, or they talk about God, or you've been taught about God maybe as a child, you might've thought that God is controlling things. Sometimes people think that God's the one who determines whether we live or we die and that if someone dies, that's God taking them back to heaven to be with him. But this isn't true. We all have free will. God doesn't control this world. For example, you can independently verify what I'm sharing here, right? I shared with you all the teachings that I share, you can independently verify. You can verify that you have free will because did God force you to come to this class right now? Did God force you to listen to this video on the replay or the podcast? No, this was a free will choice that you made every single thing that you experience in life is based on your free will in your choices but as long as you have a lack of wisdom you'll make unwise decisions because you lack the wisdom of these natural laws but where you gain the wisdom and you now transform that unknowing of true reality into wisdom you can now make wise decisions that lead to wholesome results and that's based on your free will if god was controlling us then we're all robots and we have no decisions whatsoever and we're subjected to whatever God wants. But this isn't true. This isn't how God functions. We all have free will. Nobody would enjoy living in a world where there's a supreme being controlling our every movement and everything that we do. We wouldn't enjoy that. So we have free will. Whether we've been taught that or not, I'm not sure. Everybody's experience is different. But God isn't controlling all the things that we experience. God doesn't have a destiny or a fate for us or a life that he's laid out for us. He doesn't have a master plan that we all need to conform to. And we need to figure out what is God's plan for us. No, that's not true. We are all our own independent beings making independent decisions that lead to certain results. And we experience the results of those decisions. And we can choose to live either a wholesome life or an unwholesome life. We can walk towards the light or we can stay in the darkness. It's up to us. It's our own free will. And the Buddha is providing the wisdom of how to move from the darkness to the light so that now we can live a wholesome life and we can experience a very fulfilling and satisfying life when our mind is no longer burdened with those discontent feelings of sadness, anger, frustration, and others. God doesn't grant enlightenment. He's not the one that says, you know, you're enlightened, you've now done enough work, and I've judged and determined that you're going to get enlightenment. That's not how it works. It's based on your own decisions. That as you learn, you independently verify, and you practice, and you transform your mind and uproot the pollution out of your mind, you're the one that's deciding whether you move to enlightenment or not. Everything that you experience is a result of your decisions. A practitioner attains enlightenment through their own wholesome choices to learn and practice the teachings to train the mind. It's not based on what God decides. And as you've heard me talking so far, when I refer to God, I tend to refer to God in a pronoun or with a pronoun of he. Some people might refer to God as a she or no gender at all. Based on my experiences and interactions with God, I tend to experience a very strong masculine energy. So that's why I tend to refer to him as a he. Gautama Buddha himself, during his lifetime, when he talks about God, He says that God is a male gender. I didn't know that until after I'd already decided for myself that I've experienced this masculine energy and that's why I refer to him as God. But whether you choose to do that or not is totally up to you. But just understand if you hear me refer to God as a he, this is why that based on my experiences, there's a very strong masculine energy there. And even Gautama Buddha describes the gender of God as being a he as well. So let's talk about Gautama Buddha's teachings as it relates to God, because there's various things out in the world about Gautama Buddha and what he did or didn't teach about God. You'll find that some people will say that Gautama Buddha denied the existence of God. You'll see this in certain places, but these are individuals that seem like they haven't actually learned with the original words of the Buddha, because if you dive into the teachings of the Buddha with his own words, He talks about God in different places. He doesn't make God as a central figure in his teachings, like Jesus and Prophet Muhammad does, but he talks about God and he talks about multiple gods because during that lifetime, people believed in multiple gods. So he needed to teach about these different gods. And there's certain places where he talks about the great Brahma. So he referred to God as Brahma during his lifetime. And he refers to this great brahma as the creator and the all-knowing and all-powerful so he does talk about this great brahma which we now refer to as god but he also talks about other gods as well because people believed in different gods so if you ever see that somebody says that the buddha denied the existence of god or rejected god or anything like this it's just because they haven't learned with the original words of the buddha and that's on them, that's unfortunate for them, but he did teach people how to attain enlightenment while still having an understanding of God. But understanding God wasn't required in order to get to enlightenment because it's all based on your own decisions. So discussing these various gods that people believed in actually helped them to be able to understand the world around them. So a Buddha is describing the truth of what exists in the world, and as he's describing what he understands to be the truth, and then people are able to then practice that to be able to get to enlightenment, they can see the truth for themselves. Gautama Buddha's objective wasn't to prove or disprove God's existence because, as I mentioned, there was belief in multiple gods during the lifetime of the Buddha. Instead, his goal was to share teachings that lead to liberation or to enlightenment, not based on belief, only independently verifiable truth, to acquire wisdom. So he was bringing these teachings into the world that explain the human mind, that explain these natural laws of existence, that explain the realms of existence that we experience. And this is what leads to this liberation. And you can see through your own experiences in the condition of your mind that it's moving from this anger to frustration, to irritation, to annoyance, to maybe a slight displeasure, to ultimately, as you continue to train, you get to this complete peace and this joy and people can see the truth for themselves. He didn't deal with whether there's 32 gods or one God or anything like this. He didn't try to prove or disprove it. It wasn't until about 500 years later that Jesus Christ comes along and now Jesus Christ performs a whole bunch of miracles in order to convince people that he is who he says he is. And then one of his messages was, by the way, everybody, there's only just one God and as he lived his life, he largely, in most part, convinced the vast majority of the world of who he is through the miracles that he performed and the life that he lived, and he met his objective of convincing the vast majority of the world that there's just one God. But of course, because of impermanence, not everybody agrees with that. There's some people in the world that think there is no God, or that there's multiple gods or other things like this. But Gautama Buddha's objective wasn't to try to prove or disprove God. That was Jesus Christ who was coming later. And oftentimes we see these things as very different. But if you understand the evolution of your own mind, that you need gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress, and that's what your mind needs in order to get to an improved state, all of humanity is the same way. It's not just one teacher delivering all the teachings that is going to lead to any particular improvement in the condition of humanity's mind. But humanity has been around for something like 200,000 years, I think, when first human beings came onto the planet. So we've been evolving as human beings for these 200,000 years. 200,000 years we've been evolving. We learned to rub sticks together. We learned to take this piece of Something that's on a tree and put it in our mouth, and that made the body feel better. And we learned about water and that we needed to drink that. And we learned all these things along the way. We've been gradually evolving as human beings for 200,000 years. So these different teachers and different teachings, which we talked about back in chapter one, are contributing to humanity's understanding and evolving and helping us to gain a better understanding and deeper wisdom about the world around us. So while some people might try to think of Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, Muslim teachings, Judaism, and all these other teachings as independent things, as standalone things, I see them very much as connected, where the Buddha provided these teachings to liberate the mind and get to this peaceful, calm, serene, consent mind with joy, not based on belief, but based on wisdom. These other teachings contributed something to our human consciousness, our humanity, Became wiser based on things like Hinduism or based on Christianity or based on Muslim teachings or Judaism or all these other teachings that exist in the world, but happened to be this fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha who fully awoke to these natural laws of existence that brought the teachings into the world in a way that you can now independently verify them and then practice them to be able to experience this enlightened mental state. So, Gautama Buddha focused practitioners' mind on liberation, on enlightenment based on right view. That right view is the Four Noble Truths, being able to understand that your mind is causing its own discontentedness. So he was focusing people on the work to establish right view rather than blaming others for our discontentedness that we're experiencing instead he was able to see clearly that his mind was experiencing anger frustration irritation and all these other discontent feelings based on its own conditioning based on craving anger and ignorance this is what was leading to his own discontent mind because once he solved the problem and he fixed it he was able to see what the real causes were because he understood what the causes were he could get to the elimination and that's what he's sharing in his teachings is helping you to establish right view to understand that everything you experience in life, whether it's your feelings or any other aspect of your life, this is all a result of your decisions. So if you have an electronic device to listen to this on right now, this is a result of your decisions. Or if you're in a house or some dwelling or shelter, if you have clothes on your body right now, this is a result of your decisions. Your decisions is what led to this. So, it's right view that helps us to understand that our decisions are leading to some result, that there's no being that's controlling us and forcing us to do any particular thing, but it's our decisions. So, then we can stop blaming other people or other beings like God for what we're experiencing. Sometimes people blame God for what they're experiencing. But if you have right view, you understand that it's your own decisions that are leading to some result. And this is based on the natural law of gamma as well, that we're experiencing this cause and effect or action and result. Everything we experience is a result of our own decisions. The things that we are experiencing are not based on God's creative actions. We have free will and interesting enough jesus christ taught the same thing if you understand jesus christ teachings which a lot of people who study with me do you understand that he taught you reap what you sow and when he taught you reap what you sow this is the natural law of gamma that whatever you put out in the world this is what comes back to you and other traditions teach this similar teaching as well but oftentimes what the original teacher taught And what people are actually practicing now, so many years later, can oftentimes be very different. So depending on what you've been exposed to in different venues, you might have been taught that God is controlling everything. Or God has a complete and perfect plan for you, and you've got to live up to that complete, perfect plan. But this is untrue. That what you really need to do is cultivate wisdom and get to this improved condition of mind, where now you can start functioning in the world, through your own wisdom, rather than trying to live up to somebody else's expectations, Even if you thought God has expectations, which he doesn't, but even if you thought he did and you were trying to live up to those expectations, you're always going to fall short of them and you're going to feel discontent. You're going to feel frustrated and irritated because you feel like you're not living up to God's expectations. So understand that God doesn't have expectations for you, that everything that you're experiencing is based on your own decisions, and this is right view in the natural law of Gamma. So let me share just one teaching from the Buddha about God here. This helps you to understand this natural law of gama and what you're doing on the path. He has other teachings as well that reference God, but this is just one that will help you to see and kind of see a certain perspective about where you're headed and what you're looking to accomplish and that it's not attached to God and what God chooses to do or what God chooses not to do. This is titled, All is Caused by God's Creative Action. Then, monks, I approached those aesthetics in Brahman who hold such a doctrine in view as this. Whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, all that is caused by God's creative activity. And I said to them, Is it true that you venerable ones hold such a doctrine in view? When I ask them this, they affirm it. Then I say to them, in such a case, it is due to God's creative activity that you may destroy life, take what is not given, indulge in sexual activity, speak falsehood, produce argumentative speech, speak harshly, indulge in idle chatter, that you might be full of longing, have a mind of ill will, and hold wrong view." Those who fall back on God's creative activity as the essential truth have no interest to do what should be done and to avoid doing what should not be done, nor do they make an effort in this respect. Since they do not apprehend as true and valid anything that should be done or should not be done, they are muddle-minded, they do not guard themselves, and even the personal designation aesthetic could not be legitimately applied to them. So let me help you understand this. The first thing that the first paragraph, the Buddha approached certain aesthetics in Brahman because there's monks and Brahman. Brahmin are Hindu priests that existed during the lifetime of the Buddha, and they were kind of learning from the Buddha in some cases, but they were also doing their own thing based on Hindu practices. And what it was believed at the time is that the common person needed to pay the Brahmin and they would pray on those people's behalf and those people's lives would get better. But of course, that didn't work. That's not the way any of this works. And there's other aesthetics who were trying to get to enlightenment during the lifetime of the Buddha, but they weren't necessarily studying with the Buddha. They were studying with other teachers and doing other things. So. As they would all congregate, the Buddha and some of his students with these other students of other teachers and the Brahmin Hindu priest, they would sometimes talk and have chats. So the Buddha asked these aesthetics and Brahmin who hold such a doctrine in view, whatever you experience, whether pleasure, pain, or neither painful nor pleasant, those feelings in the mind, is all of that caused by God's creative activity? And when the Buddha asked them this, they said, yeah, it's true. Everything that we experience in our mind is based on God. And God is the one who's essentially having us to experience all these different feelings and all these different experiences. And the Buddha says, when I asked them this, they affirm it. Meaning, yeah, they agree that God is the one who's causing all these different feelings. Then the Buddha said to them, well, in such a case, is it due to God that you're destroying life, meaning killing beings? Is it due to God that you're stealing? Is it due to God that you're indulging in sexual activity because aesthetics and Brahmin at that time aren't having sex with other people? Is it because of God that you're lying and speaking falsehoods, that you're having argumentative speech, that you're speaking harshly, you're involved in idle chatter, that your mind is full of this longing, which is craving, desire, attachment, that the mind has this ill will, which is the anger, hatred, and ill will, or that you hold wrong view, which this is the ignorance, this is the three unwholesome roots, craving, anger, and ignorance, so the Buddha is saying, is it because of God that all these things are happening, And then he says, those who fall back on God's creative activity, meaning God is the purpose of all these things that are happening in our life as their essential truth, then they have no interest to do what should be done, like doing good things, doing wholesome things or to avoid doing what should not be done. And they don't make an effort in this respect because it's like, ah, okay, all of that's happening because of God, so I can't do anything about it because God's the one who's making all this happen, so yeah, I'm just gonna be over here and be complacent. And the Buddha's saying, you know, you're not making an effort to improve your life if you think God is doing everything that you're experiencing. And then he says, since they don't apprehend as true and valid anything that should be done or should not be done, they are muddle-minded. Because when your mind has pollution of craving, anger, and ignorance, your mind's going to be muddled. You're not going to be concentrated and focused. But when you clear out the pollution out of your mind, your mind's going to be focused and clear and concentrated. You're going to have deep memory. You're going to be able to have focus and clarity, right? So the mind's going to be muddled if somebody doesn't understand the truth and they're practicing in this way. If you're killing, if you're stealing, if you're having sexual misconduct, if you're lying, if you're argumentative speech, if you're having harsh speech, idle chatter, if your mind's full of craving, anger, and ignorance, your mind's going to be muddled. You're not going to have clarity and crispness of mind. He says, they do not guard themselves. This is mindfulness. Mindfulness is the guard. When you have awareness of mind, then you're guarding your mind because wherever you see frustration starting to arise, you can cut it off and let it go until eventually you get to the point where it never arises anymore. But to guard themselves, you would guard yourself with mindfulness and awareness of mind. And then he says, even the personal designation aesthetic could not be legitimately applied to them. What that means is if you're an aesthetic, you're giving up worldly things and you're going off on this journey as an ordained practitioner in order to try to get to enlightenment. In order to get to enlightenment, one of the first things you need to establish is right view. That everything you're experiencing, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, is based on your own cravings, desires, attachments. So if there's these aesthetics, that are thinking that everything they're experiencing is based on god then the buddha is saying you're not even on the path to enlightenment you're not even trying to get to enlightenment because you haven't even established right view so this designation of aesthetic can't even legitimately be applied to you because you're just sitting back thinking that everything is because of god so this is a teaching here where you can see the buddha talking about god so if anybody ever says that the Buddha rejected God or he denied the existence of God, you can see the truth right here and you can see the reference that I provide that goes back to the original source teachings in the Pali Canon. This is the original source text. And there's other teachings that you'll see in this book series of the words of the Buddha with references back to the Pali Canon that show you that the Buddha did indeed teach about God, but he didn't teach that God grants enlightenment and he didn't make God a central role in his teachings because because you're getting to enlightenment based on your own decisions. That's what the Buddha is essentially getting to right here. That if these people are doing unwholesome things, like destroying life, taking what is not given, indulging in sexual misconduct, or falsehoods, or argumentative speech, speaking harshly, indulging in idle chatter, these are all based on their own decisions. So if God is the one who's granting enlightenment, then the buddhist teachings are invalid so you can see that the buddha is putting the role of getting to enlightenment squarely in your own lap realizing that what you're gaining wisdom about is this natural law of gamma of cause and effect and as you gain the wisdom of that then you'll make wiser decisions that lead to wholesome outcomes so now that we talked a little bit about just one teaching that the buddha has about god Uh, let's talk about teachings that the Buddha didn't declare, because this is in chapter 18 as well. Because the Buddha teachings, they're in 45 volumes of books. They're in very large books like this. There's 45 volumes of them. And this is collected after the death of the Buddha. They wrote all these down. So he taught about an enormous amount of things over 45 years. But there are certain discourses where he says, remember monks, what did I teach? You know, I taught this, which is What is discontentedness? The cause of discontentedness, the elimination of discontentedness, and the path to eliminate discontentedness. That's what I taught. And then he says, remember what I did not teach. I did not declare these teachings because there are certain things he didn't teach about. He left it as an undeclared teaching. And these are the 10 things that he didn't teach. He didn't teach whether the world is eternal or whether it is not eternal. He didn't teach whether the world is finite or infinite. So he didn't teach whether the world goes on forever and ever or whether it ends at some point in history. He didn't teach that. The world meaning the universe, the earth, right? So what we understand about the universal truth of impermanence is whatever arises is going to change and fade away. So humanity is impermanent, but he didn't teach whether the world itself is either eternal or not eternal, finite or infinite. He also didn't teach whether the soul is the same as the body or the soul is one thing and the body is another. He actually doesn't teach about a soul anywhere in his teachings. He leaves that as an undeclared teaching, because it conflicts with the universal truth of impermanence and the universal truth of non-self. So he doesn't teach whether there is a soul or there isn't a soul. So sometimes people label teachings as Buddhist and they might be talking about a soul. And as soon as you hear that, then you understand that they haven't studied deeply the words of the Buddha because he never declared whether there is a soul or there isn't a soul. He left it as an undeclared teaching. Even though somebody might be talking about a soul and labeling it as Buddhist teachings, that's not what the Buddha actually taught. Then he left this as an undeclared teaching of after death, the Tathagata exists. After death, the Tathagata does not exist. After death, the Tathagata both exists and does not exist or after death, the Tathagata neither exists nor does not exist. He left this as an undeclared teaching. What a Tathagata is, is an actual Buddha. It's another term for Gautama Buddha. He didn't walk around declaring himself as a Buddha to everybody and anybody that he saw. He typically referred to himself as the Tathagata. The Tathagata is a Pali word that means one who discovered the truth or one who shares the truth. That's what Tathagata is. And of course, a Buddha has gotten to enlightenment. They've eliminated the 10 fetters. So here he's saying, I'm not declaring whether I exist after I die, I'm not going to declare whether I exist afterwards, whether I don't exist, whether I both exist and do not exist, or whether I neither exist nor does not exist. So since he's not declaring for himself as an enlightened being, whether he exists or does not exist after death, you can also understand that he's saying the same thing about an enlightened being, because what you'll sometimes hear in the world is people will say that once you get to enlightenment and die, that you no longer exist anymore. But that's not what he's saying here he's leaving it as an undeclared teaching of what happens to him and what transpires to him in thus enlightened beings after he dies so he doesn't declare what happens to an enlightened being we know that if you don't get to enlightenment there's continuous rebirth in the cycle of rebirth but if you get to enlightenment he leaves it as an undeclared teaching and i have different thoughts about why he left it as undeclared that I share in this book series at different times. And we can talk about that if you like. But just understand that these are his undeclared teachings, because when we talk about God here today, you know, there's this idea that has been shared in different traditions of an afterlife, that when you die, as long as you believe in something, then you're going to have permanent afterlife. But the Buddha never taught whether there is existence or isn't existence after death. You need to get to the point where as you're progressing to enlightenment, your mind is so peaceful and so calm, so serene, so content and so joyful, you don't care what's next. If there is something at all, right? The Buddha's not declaring whether there is or isn't something. But by the time you get to enlightenment, you're not afraid of death. Right now, your mind's in the present moment. It's so peaceful and so joyful. If there is something next, it's either as good as what you're experiencing or better. And if there isn't something next, then so be it. You're already experiencing such peace and joy. It doesn't matter. So... You need to get to the point where you're not attached. You're not craving and longing yearning for some afterlife after this life. Because if you are, you're not going to be able to get to enlightenment. If you're longing yearning, you're still craving. So you need to get to the point where you let that go and just focus on the present moment. You're in this human life right now. You're in this human birth. It's the best, most ideal existence to be in because you can actually make your way to enlightenment. And you have painful feelings among other things. Feelings of conditioned feelings and those painful feelings tend to be motivation that encourage you to get to enlightenment. So this is the most ideal thing is to be in the human existence where you can make your way to enlightenment. So you need to be able to let go of any longing or yearning or craving to exist after this because sometimes we're taught to long and yearn to exist with God. And here you can see that the Buddha didn't teach that. He left it as an undeclared teaching so let me pause here and see what questions you guys might have related to what i've shared so far then we're going to go into more details breaking down this chapter piece by piece by piece and helping you to see the truth as it relates to god and certain aspects of the teachings of the buddha that will help you to either have a relationship with god and be able to get to enlightenment or not have a relationship with god and still get to enlightenment so far this is just introductory information just to help you build up a foundation of a bit of understanding what God is and what Gautama Buddha did and didn't teach a little bit around this topic before we go into detail about God and how to either have a relationship with him and still get to enlightenment or not have a relationship and still get to enlightenment. So you can put your questions into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Thank you, teacher
2: David. Chandra has a question on YouTube. She asks, what sort of karma is feeling jealousy and what will happen if one feels jealous?
1: Okay, so The gamma that you're experiencing from the jealousy is that you haven't trained your mind yet, that you haven't made the decision to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. Craving, desire, attachment is what produces all discontent feelings, jealousy, but also all the others as well. So because you have a certain craving, when you observe something that is disagreeable to you, whether it's your partner, you're jealous of them or your friends get something favorable to them, you're jealous of that your mind is experiencing craving, so jealousy arises. So you need to eliminate this through learning the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and applying all the teachings there to train the mind and restrain it to no longer have craving, desire, attachment. And specifically, you need to arise the mental quality of sympathetic joy. Sympathetic joy is the exact opposite of envy and jealousy. What sympathetic joy is joy for other's success even if you didn't contribute to it. So if you're having jealousy if somebody else gets a promotion at work, that's because you're not practicing sympathetic joy. You need to have joy for their success, even though you didn't contribute to it. If you're having jealousy about a partner, like maybe talking to a member or somebody or not spending time with you or what have you, this is due to craving, desire, attachment, just like the other jealousy as well. But in this situation, it's not sympathetic joy that you need to eliminate. It's eliminating your craving, desire, attachment to your partner and wanting them to be a certain way. It looks like I have lost my connection here to to Zoom, so it's coming back slowly here. Okay, so there we are, just some impermanence in Zoom. So yeah, I just finished that up and said that any jealousy related to a partner, if you have a partner and you're jealous of them, then it's not sympathetic joy that you need to arise, it's eliminating the craving desire attachment and even the jealousy related to a, a co-worker getting a promotion at work it's still craving desire attachment that is at the core of that but in that situation you need to arise sympathetic joy to be able to el- eliminate the jealousy along with eliminating the craving desire attachment
2: thank you sir um let's go to Marcy. she has her hand raised thank
3: you chrissy thank you teacher david um teacher david in my childhood, I had a, uh, a period of my life where I was raised Baptist and um, I had a, um, I felt a close relationship with Jesus at that time, but since in my childhood, whatever, I've diminished that relationship and I have lost contact. If I were to want to rekindle that type of relationship, you know, I know that in our prayers, we'd say, you know, we would thank Jesus and everything for everything that we had, but I understand that we have free will. So how would I... Reinitiate those types of communications, if that makes any sense.
1: It makes a lot of sense. I'm going to be getting to that and I'll cast it in that way. I, I talk about in today's class about how to develop a relationship with God. So now that I know you have that specific question, I'll be sure to wrap that into how I discuss today's topic. Thank you. Yes, you're welcome.
2: Can I also have a question. Um, I had the the upbringing of like, um, and and still people around me where the genie in a bottle, you pray for things. If you pray for it hard enough, and if you're good enough and behave well, and um, believe enough, it'll happen. Um, I understand that not to be truth. Sometimes there's still the old habit to either when someone's going through a hard time, say, I'm praying for you. Um, And although I do still pray for them, it's in a different way. Um, Would someone with with that type of upbringing, then would the training be to cut off those thoughts? Like, well, when Allie broke her arm, um, when my daughter broke her arm, it was immediately the mind went back to, oh my gosh, we need prayers (laughs) Um, we're getting in a helicopter and i have to leave two kids here and i'm taking one to a different place (laughs) Um, but i know that the prayers isn't going to be what helps it's the wisdom and um, so for someone with that background is it then just to cut off that thought and redirect the mind and then practice the wisdom
1: Yeah, so we're going to be talking about prayer today, too, because this is something that a lot of us have been taught, that if we sit down and we pray, and we believe that God is going to magically present us what it is that we want. And this isn't true. So let me talk about that when we get to the the prayer part, Chrissy, because then I'll wrap that in as well so that we can be sure to fully flush that out and having the lead up information to be able to understand it.
2: Yes, it's just I found that Going through that, there was a bit more panic because previously I would have been prayed and found a little bit of comfort and peace and like praying and then I was like, oh, this isn't even going to help. Why, why pray? <laughs> like, I, like, I don't need to pray right now and so then there's like more panic. Um, so yes.
1: So you know that you've had an attachment to God throughout yeah. certain portions of your life. So that's why that when you realize like, Hey, I can't pray to God and get what I want. It's about these wise decisions. There's a bit of discontentedness there that I can't even do that because I know it doesn't work. So you've been working on letting go of that attachment and realizing that what you need to do is make wise decisions and learning how to have a relationship with God. If that's what you choose, you can do it, but you need to understand how to do that in a healthy way without craving, desire, attachment. As long as you have attachment to God, you're going to be discontent around that relationship, just like you would be discontent in any other relationship where there's craving, desire, attachment. You're going to be discontent in that relationship too. Thank you.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Okay.
2: It looks like Joe has his hand raised.
4: Hello. Um, This may be ignorant speaking, but I've always been of the mindset that sort of God was created to you know for the most part keep us from ripping each other apart um so I guess I'm a bit of an atheist in that respect or or at least believing in you know Jesus Christ I guess um and you know I don't even know how I would prove it you know um one way or the other but you know I guess uh you know, do most Buddhists believe in a singular sort of God or, um, you know, because I find the two kind of conflict with each other, at Mm -hmm. least for me. Um, And uh, that's it, I guess.
1: Sure. So remember with Buddhist teachings, there's no belief whatsoever. You're not believing anything. It's all about personal choice. So there's some people who are Buddhist that have an understanding of God and have a relationship with God. And there's some people who think that the Buddha rejected God and that there is no such thing as God. So there's a whole gamut, right? That there's not just one fixed way. But what I'm doing is I'm doing the same thing that the Buddha did during his lifetime, is the Buddha looked at what people believed during his lifetime, and then he taught them how to get to enlightenment and kind of reshuffle and reorganize and reconsider and re-understand what they currently understand about certain beings that they thought about during that lifetime. So today, people either have no understanding of God whatsoever, they might be atheists, or they might have an understanding of God a little bit based on previous experiences in their life, and they might have anger and hatred towards God based on what has happened, or maybe fear. Or they might have a relationship with God and and be asking God for all kinds of things and wanting things from God. In all of these situations, the mind's going to be hindered unless there's just an atheist, where if somebody's just like, all right, there's no such thing as God, and I'm just going to go forward in life as if there is no God. But I'm not going to hate him. I'm not going to do that, but I'm just going to go forward with my own life. This can actually be helpful if you do it that way. But there's some people who are interested in having a relationship with God, and I can help people to understand how to do that but they need to understand certain things that they might've been exposed to in the past that are untrue, which is the next part of the class. I just kind of led us up to this point. So once I get into that detail, you guys will be able to see more clearly there. But then there's also things I'm gonna teach you that if you're not interested in a relationship with God, you need to be sure that you understand how to do that as well so gotama buddha and buddhist they're going to have different thoughts but you should never believe in anything so what i'm sharing with you are things that you can independently verify like that you have free will you can independently verify this and there's even ways to independently verify god's existence But it's not going to be like as simple as the universal truth of impermanence where I can teach it to you in three minutes and then you can independently verify it. There's certain aspects of this, which I'll get to because I know Bruce and I were having a conversation about this in the Facebook group. And Bruce usually tunes in through YouTube, which I think he's there. I I saw him say hello. So I plan to kind of incorporate some of that into our discussion in class today as well.
4: Okay. Yeah, it was the independently verifying it as, you know, the tough part. Mm -hmm. It usually seems that, you know, if God wants you to know he exists, you know, then he pretty much tells you, I don't know if there's any way that you can go out and, you know, besides hearsay, you know. um, So anyways, I guess I'll just uh, go along
1: with the ride here. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I think that once I get into more of the content of what I have to share with you, and that's in this chapter, I don't know how many of you guys have read this chapter. If you read this chapter, you'll know where I'm going with this class. But if you haven't read the chapter yet, stick around. You're going to hear me get into all the various facets of things that we've been exposed to growing up as children that were untrue and that lead us to thinking one way or another about God, and we might reevaluate that now that we're on this path to enlightenment. But always understand that a relationship with God isn't required to get to enlightenment.
2: Thank you. Um, It does look like Bruce has a question on YouTube. He asks, did the Buddha leave things undeclared because such things did not lead to enlightenment, and so teaching such things were of no use to people?
1: Exactly. That's the main reason why he didn't teach these. There's other considerations that I share in the book series of why he didn't necessarily teach some of these things, but exactly that he only taught what led to enlightenment. There's a simile that he shares where he's walking through the forest and he's got some monks with him and he reaches down and he picks up some leaves in his hand and he asks the monks, what is more All the leaves overhead and all the trees are these leaves that are in my hand. And the monk said, you know, of course, you know, the leaves overhead are much more significant and elaborate than those few leaves that you have in your hand. Those few leaves in your hand are insignificant compared to all the leaves over your head. And he said, so too is the wisdom that I cultivated on this independent journey to enlightenment all the leaves overhead represent all the wisdom that I cultivated as part of this journey to enlightenment. And these leaves in my hands represent the wisdom that you need to cultivate in order to get to enlightenment. And I only ever taught the leaves that are in my hand. So the Buddha understood much more than he ever shared. And he only ever shared those few leaves that were in his hand because that's what leads to enlightenment. If a Buddha shares every single thing that they know, It would be very exhaustive and it would really clutter a student's mind that they wouldn't have time to absorb the teachings that they need to get to enlightenment because the teachings to get to enlightenment are comprehensive enough that that takes You know a number of years to fully get your arms around it if he included all the other things that he knew it would be too exhaustive so a buddha is only going to teach those leaves in the hand those are the things that you need to get to enlightenment so anything that is not needed to get to enlightenment a buddha is not going to teach it
2: thank you um and also on youtube yoli asks so what words could we use when consoling someone who is in pain or suffering or who has had a loss
1: so what you decide to do in each individual situation is going to be unique to you to your personality and to the situation Oftentimes in society, some cultures try to come up with one phrase to use in any given situation. It's almost like a computer or a robot. If somebody tells you that somebody has died in their family, maybe some cultures will say, I'm sorry for your loss. Or if somebody says, hey, I fought in Vietnam War. Thank you for your service. Right. Like to me, this is the most uncompassionate, unthoughtful way to interact with somebody. If we just have these canned pre-statements that we're going to now say whenever somebody says something, we're walking around like robots. Instead, we need to take in the totality of the situation and then offer whatever it is we're going to offer. And it's going to be unique in each different situation. And that's what it means to have a higher consciousness Or be enlightened that we think through what we're experiencing that we take in all the variables and we come out with a very thoughtful reply that's unique potentially for that situation so if somebody is struggling with a loss of a family member then each situation is a bit different, and I'm going to share something potentially different in each one of those situations. And sometimes I might just smile and give them a hug. Sometimes I might just ask them, "Are you doing okay? Is there anything that I can do for you?" Sometimes I might say, "You know, are you feeling sad?" And if they say yes, you know, would you like to understand why? You know, each situation is different, so it's important to as you understand the teachings of the Buddha and you cultivate wisdom, that you take in the variables of each situation and then reply with something thoughtful and meaningful. But don't feel that it's your job to say something that's gonna reduce their sadness or grief because you can't reduce someone's sadness or grief. That's not a role that you can live up to. In order for a person to eliminate grief or sadness, they need to eliminate their cravings, desires, attachments. So if somebody's struggling with grief due to the family member passing away, if their mind is open to learning the Four Noble Truths, or if they haven't learned those, or if they need techniques to learn how to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, that's what I'm going to offer potentially. But in some situations, I can't do that, or it's not my place to do that, or it's not my role, or I'm unable to. I talked with a lady a couple of weeks ago who's Thai and and she doesn't really speak much English. And she was telling me that her child died. And um, all I could do is just rub her on her shoulder and say, are you doing okay? And she just said, yeah, I'm okay. I'm working. You know, it'll be all right. and I just said, okay, because she didn't have the ability to understand English and I didn't have the ability to to speak in Thai. So each situation is going to be different. And as you learn and practice, you will find ways to share things with people that can be helpful. And I wouldn't encourage you to try to have a stock answer for any particular situation.
2: Thank you, Teacher David. Um, Marcy has her hand raised. Let's go to her. Thank you, Christy. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, Teacher David, as I
3: sit here and I'm pondering this question I wanna ask you, I feel like it may be my own craving desire uh, attachment that I, I need an answer to this. Um, I've taken this course with you. This is probably my third cycle through with you, and at each time that this chapter would approach, I had always this hatred and dislike and and you know negative energy towards uh, this being God and Jesus. And today, as we're sitting in the class, I almost had like this shift in my mind, which propelled me to ask my pre- my previous question. Is this a sign of, of me becoming unmuddled, and I, am I having attachment to being able to want to recognize when I'm becoming unmodeled, if that makes any sense?
1: It sounds like what's happened is you've let go some of your ill will, some of your anger and hatred towards the being God and Jesus Christ. And now you're maybe having a shift where... You're saying, hey, well, if I am interested in having a relationship, how would I do that? So that's a good thing. If you've been practicing breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity, that's helping you eliminate some craving, desire, attachment. If you've been practicing loving kindness meditation, that's helping you eliminate the anger, hatred, and ill will. And maybe now your mind's at a point where it's not having those same kind of feelings that you've had in the past.
3: Would adding... Um god or jesus to my loving kindness meditation be something that i may benefit from in this new endeavor that i'm trying to experience
1: if you have anger hatred ill will or even lesser versions like frustration irritation agitation or anything like that towards any being whatsoever yes including them in your loving kindness meditation is how to eliminate that whether it's a human being whether it's an animal whether it's a group of people or whether it's god or jesus you can include them in your loving kindness meditation to change and transform your mind whether you choose to have a relationship with them or not is up to you but if you have anger hatred ill will for any beings whatsoever it will hinder you from experiencing enlightenment so you would like to eliminate any anger hatred ill will towards god or towards jesus because as long as you have that it's going to hinder you from getting to enlightenment even if you did all the other work you would still be hindered. So whether you have a relationship or not is not dependent on whether you get to enlightenment. But if you have anger, hatred, ill will, and whether you don't, this is going to affect your enlightenment.
3: So with you just saying that, so I literally will have to, or be interested or practice or have dedication to make sure that I have no hatred, ill will, towards any being whatsoever before enlightenment will approach, will <laughs> okay yep yeah. all right it,
1: and it doesn't mean wow. it doesn't mean that you need to have a relationship with those beings right so like say you have somebody in your past that has done something significantly harmful you know verbal abuse mental abuse sexual abuse physical abuse something like this you may not ever see them ever again in your life But if your mind is harboring anger, hatred, ill will, or lesser versions like frustration, irritation, annoyance, agitation, you won't be able to get to enlightenment. So whether it's that individual who you're never going to see again, or whether it's God or Jesus or whoever else, Prophet Muhammad or anybody, you need to get to a point where you don't have any anger, hatred, ill will with any being whatsoever. Because if you do, you still have that mental object of ill will, that fetter is still there. It hasn't been uprooted yet. And typically it's not gonna be just towards one person, it's gonna spill over into other people too. So you need to uproot that mental object of ill will in order to liberate the mind from those feelings.
3: Um, my next question Teacher David, if this is something that I probably need to speak with you privately about, please tell me so. But should I be like, inventorying like my past relationships or should I uh, address them as they arise? Because I feel as though I've experienced quite a lot of hatred, anger and ill will towards quite a few people of my past. So I'm not sure if maybe I need to start inventorying them and try to start doing loving kindness meditation for each one as I inventory and try to squash that out or if I should just kind of do it as it comes along. Maybe I'm having some attachment right now. I'm having some craving.
1: You can do both that as you notice that anger, hatred, ill will, or lesser versions arising, you can address it then. But you can also sit down and look over your life and try to evaluate, are there any people that you've had or any beings or any groups of people? Like if somebody hates police officers, they're not going to get to enlightenment. So they're going to need to include that into their loving kindness meditation. So you can look back over your life. You know, if you hate politicians You're not going to get to enlightenment as long as that hatred's there. So this is why when you're doing loving kindness meditation, you can include individuals and you can include groups of people because this is what's going to eliminate the fetter or the taint or the pollution of ill will. So you can do it both ways as it arises and you can also look back and look over your life and evaluate whether or not you have any ill will or any of those lesser versions for any individual or groups of people.
3: Thank you, Teacher
2: David. I mm-hmm. appreciate your,
1: your time. You're welcome. So I think we should maybe go forward now, Chrissy. Do we have any other questions?
2: We're good to go forward.
1: Okay. So yeah, I think this will really help you guys to get more into the class and the meat of what it is that I'm I'm sharing with you guys today. So let's first talk about a relationship with God and how to actually have that relationship. And then towards the end of class, I will talk about If you're not interested in a relationship with God, how to get to enlightenment in that way. So, as I've shared already in multiple responses to questions in my introduction, is that a relationship with God is not required to attain enlightenment, but having a relationship with God also will not hinder you either. If you learn and practice in the way that I'm sharing, based on what you've been exposed to in previous experiences and traditions, if your mind's holding on to certain things, and you're still trying to have a relationship with god it could hinder you from getting to enlightenment but if you understand what i'm going to share with you today and reflect on it based on what you've been exposed to in the past you can see how you can strip away that conditioning and get to a point where you can have a healthy relationship with god and then i will share with you how to not have a relationship with god and get to enlightenment so if you would like to have a relationship with God, you can, but it's not required in order to get to enlightenment. And having a relationship won't hinder you as long as you're understanding these things and practicing these things, which I detail in chapter 18, but I'll talk about it here in the class as well. But I do suggest you guys read this chapter. The first thing is understanding God and right view. Understand and practice right view, because oftentimes we are taught that God is controlling things, that God is going to perform these mystical, magical things for us if we believe strong enough and we pray hard enough that we're going to get these certain things from God. But you need to understand that God is not controlling the world. He's not controlling what is happening in the world. Instead, it's... Your own mind that is causing its anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance and all these other discontent feelings and anything that you experience, either wholesome or unwholesome, it's coming from your choices and your decisions, not from God. And it's not even luck. If you've ever been taught that there's good luck and bad luck, there's no such thing. It's always everything that you experience is a result of your decisions. And the more you can see that, the more established you can get with right view. So you need to understand right view and then practice it fully where you don't think that things are happening in your life because of God or good luck or bad luck or things like this. Instead, everything is a result of your decisions. And that's why you can clean up your mind and clean up your life to the point where you only experience wholesome things happening in your life and your mind's fully protected. If your life was dependent on what God did, then you can't budge, you can't move, you can't do anything unless God grants you this ability. So understanding that you have free will and fully seeing that, and that everything that you experience is a result of your decisions, you can more firmly establish right view and understand that God's not controlling you and dictating what does or doesn't happen in your life. Then understand God and eliminating craving in the mind. That oftentimes we're taught that through prayer, God is almost like a genie in a bottle. That if we sit down and we pray hard enough and believe hard enough that we'll get whatever we want from God. And even though you might have been taught this, this isn't true. And you can test it for yourself. You can independently verify it. Because right now, you can put your hands together. You can pray for a million dollars. You can pray for a new house. You can pray for new clothes, a new job, or whatever it is that your mind might be wanting. And you can pray for it. And you can see it's not going to happen. The only way any of those things are going to happen is through your own decisions. So if I pray right now, please, God, give me a million dollars so that I can donate this to help people eat food here in Thailand please 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 or whatever we might pray give me that money did it show up yes or no did anybody have this show up for them the answer is no right so this is how you independently verify that God is not a genie in a bottle if you've been taught that you can pray to God and he will grant you your wishes when you're praying and he doesn't grant you those wishes you might turn your back on God, or you might think that God doesn't exist. So if you have a relative that's in a poor health condition and you pray to God and ask God to please save this person's life, and then the person dies, you might actually blame God for this. If you believe that God is killing people, and God can perform a miracle and grant you this wish for them to live. If you pray to God and this person dies, you might either turn your back on God or you might think that God doesn't exist. But this is just a false belief. This is just conditioning of the mind. This is just what's been taught over the years that is clouding the mind in this ignorance or unknowing of true reality in this delusion where. People are being taught that God's a genie in a bottle, and it's not true. That's not the way things function, and you can see this for yourself by testing it, and you may have have tested it many times in the past. So it's not that God doesn't exist, it's that people have taught that God is a genie in a bottle, and when he doesn't do what they want, they get painful feelings because they have a certain craving, Please save my mom from this illness. And you have a certain craving. And then when that craving doesn't get fulfilled, the mind experiences painful feelings like anger, sadness, frustration, and others. And now because of wrong view, the mind is falsely attributing those painful feelings to God. It's God that's making me feel this sadness Or this grief or this misery because he didn't give me what I wanted which is my mom living or my dad living or grandma grandpa living so people oftentimes have aversion they push God out of their life because they think that God is causing these painful feelings it's the same thing that people are doing with human beings that if you get what you want you get pleasant feelings if you don't get what you want you get painful feelings you falsely attribute them to other people due to wrong view and now you push those people out of your way that's called aversion you think that solves the problem, but it doesn't. Or we become bitter and harsh and aggressive towards people, or we put our expectations on people and try to get them to do things our way. But this is all the delusion. This is the confusion. This is the misunderstanding. This is the unknowing of true reality. So God isn't sitting somewhere Waiting to grant people's wishes like the Wizard of Oz or sitting behind some curtain somewhere like a genie in a bottle and Waiting for the wishes and then either granting them or not granting them Every single thing you experience in life is based on your own decisions Cause and effect or action and result the results of your decisions if you would like to pray with god this is a way that you can communicate with god you can pray you can say to god that you believe in god that you understand that he exists that you're open to his guidance and giving him thanks for being in your life you might decide to do that and god can actually guide you in certain ways on the path or you might just decide if you're looking to recultivate or rekindle a relationship with god you might just say god i don't know if you exist or not i have no idea But if you do exist, I'm open to a relationship with you. I'm open to your guidance. And if you choose to help me, I'm perfectly appreciative and have lots of gratitude for that. But I don't know if you exist or you don't exist. If you can give me some indication throughout my life that you exist, wonderful. But I haven't seen that evidence yet. So I'm not sure if you exist or you don't exist. So as you choose to have a relationship with God, he may show you things in order to help you see that he exists. He's able to do that, but he typically only does that on a one-on-one basis. He doesn't give this evidence where he shakes the whole earth, that he turns the sky black and rains down lightning bolts to try to shake everybody into believing about him. Because if that's what he truly wanted, he's the all-powerful, all-knowing. He surely could do it. If he wanted to fear you, into believing in him, he surely could. There's other people in the world who might be trying to fear you into believing in God, but that's not what God does. Because you see, he hasn't turned the sky black, he hasn't rained down lightning bolts, he hasn't shaked the earth. If he was to do that, that's what he would do in order to fear you into believing him and and bow down to him and submit to his power but that's not the type of God that exists in the world. That might be what people' impression of God is, and that's what they might be teaching and trying to get other people to believe, but this isn't true. So if you would like to pray, it's up to you what you pray about. But if you're Asking God for things. This is your own craving, your own yearning, your own longing. Like, please give me this, give me that, give me this, give me that. That's your mind longing and yearning. And if you get what you want, which God's not going to give it to you, it's based on your own decisions, you'll get pleasant feelings. But if you don't get what you want, you're not going to get it from God. But if you don't get it from your own decisions, you'll get painful feelings. And you might attribute it to God. So you need to eliminate your craving, desire, attachment to obtain things from God through prayer because God isn't granting wishes. And as long as you keep craving and longing and yearning, you're not gonna get to enlightenment because you need to extinguish craving, desire, attachment. So you can transform your prayer from longing and yearning and asking for things like a genie in a bottle to I either believe in you or I would like to believe in you. I would like to understand you. I'm interested in a relationship with you. I don't know if you exist or not, but if you're out there, I'm open to your guidance and you're welcome to come into my life and help me as you see fit and give thanks for that. Now, if you sat down and you're like, okay, God, I need your guidance here. I need you to tell me, should I break up with this man or should I stay with him or should I break up with this woman or stay with her? God's not going to give you that guidance. He's not going to just zap the, the answer to you you have to figure this stuff out for yourself. You have to make your own decisions. But as you're going through life and you might be praying to have a relationship with God and you just let him know that you're open to his guidance and you appreciate him being in your life and thanking him for that relationship. As you're going through life, you might have this kind of fatherly wisdom that comes into the mind. You start understanding things and then you know it's wisdom that you don't have and it's coming from somewhere else. You didn't ask for it, it just started coming to you and it starts coming into your mind and you still don't believe it if there's any wisdom that comes into your mind you still need to reflect on that and verify whether it's independently true and practice it because you've got this being of god but there's also this being of mara that is looking to cause calamity in the world and uh, jesus christ referred to this being as satan or the devil or lucifer so the buddha referred to this being as mara this is an unwholesome being that's interested in causing calamity in the world so when things are coming into your mind you're either being influenced by mara to go down an unwholesome path or god is perhaps giving you wisdom and there's even heavenly beings that can do this type of thing too so you're not believing anything that comes into your mind You're learning, you're reflecting to independently verifying, you're practicing, and then more and more, you will see the truth and God, as you open up your mind and as you clear out more and more of the pollution and get closer and closer to wholesomeness or closer and closer to enlightenment, God can actually come through and actually guide you more readily, but he does it very selectively because you have to do the work and he's not interested in you being attached to him or being dependent on him so you've just got to do the work let him know you're open to the guidance and wherever he chooses to share that guidance is up to him that you don't have an expectation that he shares this guidance but as you go forward in life if you have a relationship he will share guidance with you from time to time but it's up to you to then learn reflect and practice to determine the truth it's important that you eliminate any craving, desire, attachment to be with God in heaven. If you've been taught that the goal of this life is to live for eternity with God in heaven, that's a craving, desire, attachment that the mind can form. And now if you're longing and yearning for that, then you're wanting something and you're longing and yearning for existence after this life. You need to get to the point where you've eliminated the desire for existence in any form, The Buddha left it as an undeclared teaching, whether we exist or we don't exist. And one of the fetters that he taught is to eliminate desire for existence, that you essentially get to the point where you're no longer longing and yearning for existence. So if you're longing and yearning for existence in heaven with God, this is still a craving desire attachment It's going to prevent you from experiencing enlightenment. And then eliminate any craving desire attachment to God himself, or however you think about this being. If you have a craving, desire, attachment to God, then you're going to experience discontentedness as a result of that, just like any other relationship whether it's your children, whether it's your life partner, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's a friend or family member, if you have craving, desire, attachment in a relationship, when you interact with this person, you will become discontent because of your craving, desire, attachment. So the way you get liberated from your discontentedness to your family members, to friends, to neighbors, to significant others, is you learn how to let go of your attachments and now you can reside very peacefully and harmoniously and joyfully in these relationships. Or if you choose to not have a relationship with somebody, you might still be attached to them, even though you've chosen not to have a relationship with that person, you might still have attachment. And you need to eliminate that attachment in order to get liberated from the strong feelings that are arising as a result of that attachment. So the same thing is you might be having strong feelings as a result of your attachment to God. And this is where some students have told me, just like Marcy said, that even when I just mention the word God, like anger comes up in their mind. Marcy didn't say this, but I've had other students say that, just mentioning the word God uh, or Jesus Christ or Prophet Muhammad will just arise frustration in their mind. So this is due to craving, desire, attachment. It's not due to what I'm saying. It's due to the mind's craving, desire, attachment. So if you eliminate your attachment to God, then you can reside more harmoniously in your relationship with him if you choose to have a relationship with him. So God, in the natural law of Gamma, it's important to understand this natural law, that God is not controlling you. He's not dictating what should or shouldn't happen in your life. He hasn't laid out a perfect and complete plan for you that you have to magically figure out and live up to. Instead, you're experiencing the results of your decisions. And whatever you experience is based on a choice or decision that you've made. So the more wisdom that you cultivate about this natural law of gamma, then you'll be able to see that everything you're experiencing is a result of your decisions. Like we talked about last week, that an enlightened being doesn't have any fear in the mind whatsoever. You need to eliminate any fear that you might have of God. Some people walk around being fearful that God is going to punish you. Or they're expecting God to reward them for certain things. If you have fear of God, this will inhibit you from getting to enlightenment. If you have fear about anything, if you have fear about spiders, it will inhibit you from getting to enlightenment. So just like we talked about eliminating fears last week, an enlightened being would need to eliminate all fears. If you have a fear of God, you're going to need to eliminate that as well. and Just realize that this being means no harm to you, and they're not doing anything to harm you. Any things that you're experiencing in terms of harm, it's based on your own decisions. So you need to make wiser and wiser decisions. So anything that's happening in your life that is undesirable and you would prefer not to happen, it's not because of God, it's because of your own decisions. So the more you analyze that and figure that out, understanding the natural law of gamma, you can get away from this fear and realize that God isn't doing anything to you at all. He's not actually punishing you or rewarding you for anything. So then someone might say, well, what is God doing then? If he's not punishing me, he's not rewarding me. I didn't put this in this chapter or in this class, but God's not requiring you to worship him. He's not requiring you to bow down to him. He's not requiring you to believe in him. He doesn't have any of those requirements. Those are all expectations. Those are all cravings. And if a human being can cultivate non-craving and non-clinging and get to this peaceful and joyful mind, what do we think about this all-powerful, all-knowing God? Do you think he has craving? Do you think he has anger? Do you think he has ignorance? Of course he doesn't have those things. So if God has expectations that we should worship him and we should bow down to him, the worship part and the bowdowing to him, this is the ego, right? You know, God doesn't have that. God is only interested in seeing wonderful, loving things happen for all of us, but he's not controlling whether that happens to us or not. It's our own decisions that are doing that. In my opinion, since being a parent, I've understood God a lot better because my child, I wouldn't send my child to hell for eternity for making one mistake. That's oftentimes what we're taught, that if we make one mistake in our life, that we're going to get sent to hell for the rest of eternity. Well, we wouldn't do that as parents, and we're human beings. If God has more wisdom than us, then wouldn't we think that God wouldn't do that either? Because if we can cultivate our mind to the point where we wouldn't send our child to hell for eternity, then why would God do that to us if he's more wise and more knowledgeable than us? So God's not interested in us fearing him, even though this might be taught in various traditions that we're supposed to fear God, or God's not punishing us, God's not requiring us to worship him, or forcing our hand to do anything whatsoever. If we choose to sing songs, or we choose to go to places where they're praising God, okay, great, you know, we can uplift that, and we can experience that, but that's not something that God's requiring us to do. Therefore, if we don't do it, it doesn't mean that God's gonna be angry at us and that we've now done something wrong. Because if that was the case, then God has craving and God doesn't have craving. So if God craves for us to worship him and we don't worship him, he would be angry, right? This might be what people teach you, that if we don't worship God, he's gonna be an angry God or a jealous God. God is not angry, God is not jealous. God doesn't have craving, desire, attachment, so therefore he's not experiencing those conditioned feelings. So now understanding God a bit more through some of these things that I shared, you might decide to understand God as a deep practitioner of these teachings. That if you think about God as the creator of the universe or the creator of the world and creator of these natural laws, then since he created them, he deeply understands them and he's deeply practicing them. His mind is fully liberated. He's not attached to us. He doesn't want anything specific for us. He's not attached to us and he's not responsible to restrain us that sometimes we think that if we do something unwise that this is because of god or the devil or mara or we think that if we are doing something unwise that it's up to God to restrain us. He's not responsible for that. We need to restrain our own mind. It's kind of like if you have a child and your little baby keeps going over to the stove and keeps going over to the stove and keeps trying to touch the stove and you keep restraining your child and restraining your child and restraining your child, this child keeps wanting to touch the stove and it keeps going to the stove and you keep telling it, It's hot. It's going to hurt you. Don't touch the stove. And you keep restraining it and restraining it. Eventually, you probably will just politely and kindly and patiently help the child get closer to the stove, feel the heat. And then when they feel it, they'll never touch the stove again. At least that's what I did with my son when he was growing up. When he kept trying to go to the stove, I kept restraining him. And eventually I was like, all right, he hasn't cultivated the wisdom of why I'm trying to not have him touch the stove. So you know what, if he wants to touch the stove, I'm gonna let him walk over there, but I'm gonna be there so that he doesn't lay his hand on it and you know singe it. So I walked over there and as he got close to the stove and he touched it and then he realized it was hot, he never touched the stove ever again. So the more that I tried to restrain him, the more he wanted to touch the stove. So God's responsibility isn't to restrain us. We are cultivating our own wisdom. God's not attached to us doing any one particular thing. God's interested in seeing all beings live in harmony, but in order to accomplish that, we need to acquire wisdom. We wouldn't be able to live in harmony if our mind is still polluted with craving, anger, and ignorance. So this being of God, oftentimes people think that all the harms that are being caused in the world is because of God. So if there's a murder, or there's a rape, or there's terrorism, or something like this, or famine, they think God is causing this. No, God's not causing that. Human beings' decisions are causing those things. If there's a war, God's not causing that. God's not wanting that to occur. God is practitioner of these teachings. He's not attached to us. He's not responsible for restraining us for the harmful things that we're doing. He's interested in seeing us all live in harmony, but we need to cultivate wisdom to be able to do that. The responsibility is on us, not on God. So, All of this is what i'm sharing in this chapter and you can read it in much more detail in the chapter but ultimately what i get to in chapter 18 is saying okay if you have no interest in god then you can still get to enlightenment you don't need to cultivate a relationship with him to get to enlightenment you can get guidance from god if you decide to have a relation with him but that's not required in order to get to enlightenment. You can cultivate this wisdom through reading books, through talking with your teacher, through all these other mechanisms. It's kind of like if you didn't have a relationship with your neighbor, you can still get to enlightenment. But if your neighbor has a certain wisdom that would be beneficial to your life, you're not going to get that wisdom if you don't have a relationship with them. But nonetheless, you can still move forward in your life and have a perfectly wonderful life. So it's the same thing as God has all this wisdom to be able to help us. And if we choose to have a relationship with him, it can surely help us on the path. But if we choose not to have a relationship with him, that's okay too. We can still cultivate the wisdom to live this life and have an enlightened mind. So if you have no interest in God, you can still get to enlightenment. But what you're going to need to learn is to have loving kindness for all beings. If you have anger, hatred, or ill will towards God, you're gonna need to eliminate it. Because sometimes, depending on how we grew up and what we've been exposed to, we might have cultivated this anger, hatred, and ill will towards God. If, for example, we've been taught to pray and that God's gonna give us whatever we want, if we have certain cravings and we're praying for those and we don't get what we want, you might get angry. You might get angry at God because you feel like he didn't give you what you wanted. Or you might turn your back on him and think that he doesn't exist. So depending on what you've been taught, if you've been taught that God gives you what you want and you've been praying for certain things and they just never happened for you, you might have this anger and hatred because of your wrong view that you've had before. But if you understand that everything you experience in life is a result of your own decisions, then you can understand when you were praying before asking God for things, this is due to the delusion, the unknowing of true reality certain people taught you that god is going to give you anything you want and when you were praying you thought you were going to get those things based on your delusion and your unknowing of true reality your confusion and misunderstanding and then when those things weren't acquired your mind got angry and perhaps you were praying for a loved one to not die and thinking that God is taking people from you. And now when you're grieving, you might be hating God. So you would like to get to a point where you no longer have anger, hatred, and a will towards God. And the way that you do this is through putting them in your loving kindness meditation, whether it's God or Jesus or Prophet Muhammad or any being, whether they're dead and long gone in the past or uh, whether you don't even believe in God. If you don't even believe God exists, but you still have anger, hatred, and a will towards them. Perhaps you grew up in a community or an environment where you were abused in your religious environment and where they were teaching about God. And then there were human beings who chose to abuse you either verbally, mentally, sexually, or physically. And if this occurred, you might attribute those feelings that you experienced due to craving desire attachment and due to the harm that you experience from these people operating within the community of a certain tradition you might have attributed those to god so if you've been abused in certain environments and you're attributing what you experienced in those environments to god you need to realize that god didn't do that that it was these human beings in that environment and even though they may be thinking that they're acting godly or they're acting on the behalf of god God wouldn't do those things to you. Those people might have done those things to you, but that's not God. So you need to separate it and see that these people have done harmful things and you're not interested in ever being harmed in that way again, but that wasn't God who did that. So it could potentially arise anger in the mind if you've been abused in any environment where they're a community of people who are talking about God or discussing God or sharing teachings that they feel are from God, you might start to have anger, hatred, and ill will based on things that happen in that environment. So whether you're having a relationship with God or not, you need to at least eliminate any anger, hatred, and ill will, even if you don't believe in God whatsoever. If there's any even frustration or agitation or irritation. And the way that you do that is through eliminating craving, desire, attachment, and by eliminating anger, hatred, ill will, by arising loving kindness through your loving kindness meditation. So this is everything that I have to share with you. And there's a lot more details in the book But what I'd like to do is is just turn things over to all of you guys for any questions because this tends to be a topic that people have been exposed to a lot of different things. And I would like to create some space that you guys can ask any and all questions that you like. You can put them into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically. For those of you guys that have already asked questions that I said I would answer later as I talk, if I haven't quite answered your question yet, feel free to re-ask that question, or if there's now a new question based on something that I've already shared in this part of the class, then feel free to ask any of those questions. So you can put them into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and then I'll answer any questions that you guys have.
2: Thank you, Teacher David. Bruce has a question on YouTube. He asks, I have understood Mara to be a metaphor for craving, desire, and attachment in the mind. Is this incorrect? Is Mara an actual being?
1: Yes, that's incorrect, Bruce. Mara is an actual being. Mara is an unwholesome being that is looking to promote hostility and aggression and experiences that are in the world and kind of influence the mind of human beings and other beings to do harmful things in the world. So it is an actual being.
2: Thank you. And then I have a question. Um, So when when trying to practice letting go um, of a person like um, walking away from the darkness, walking to light, one would practice breathing mindfulness meditation, right?
1: When you're trying to let go of attachment to a person? Correct. Yeah, breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity is generalized training, but then there's also other things you can be doing as well, which I share in certain classes.
2: Okay. What I'm finding is, like what I've been doing is the, the breathing mindfulness meditation, when I implement the loving kindness meditation, I feel like it kind of increases the attachment when I do the loving kindness meditation where there's a bit like almost like it increases the craving for that person or attachment. And should I just then not incorporate that person in the loving kindness meditation and just work on breathing mindfulness meditation?
1: Are these people that you have anger, hatred, ill will towards? Yes. Okay. Why are you thinking that it's a rising more attachment? What are you noticing?
2: I'm just, I'm noticing that the mind is back on that person more. Um, in the past, then I would um, start communicating with that person again. Um, when I know that I, the, the desire is to walk away from this person, Um, that it's not a healthy relationship, but I'll implement the loving kindness and kind of like go the opposite direction.
1: Okay, so here's where this is helpful to understand. There's two aspects of eliminating a craving-desire attachment. The first aspect of it is distancing yourself from the object itself. And then there's working to eliminate the craving, desire, attachment that's in the mind. So let me give you an example. Like say I was attached to chocolate. I need to distance myself from that so that I'm no longer around chocolate. And now that I've distanced myself, I'm no longer around it. Now, as I've noticed you know, several weeks or months that I'm not around chocolate anymore, then I need to be continually working with breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity and other teachings to be able to eliminate the actual craving from the mind. So a relationship is the same way, that if you're in a relationship and you're trying to end it, rather than right away go to loving kindness meditation, what you should focus on is first distancing yourself from the person, and getting many weeks and many months where you're away from this person. And then as you've been away for maybe three months, six months, or what have you, then if you notice there's some anger, hatred, a will frustration towards that person in the mind, then bring in your loving kindness meditation.
2: Okay, thank you, that's helpful. So mm-hmm. when there is still a significant amount of attachment and craving, you wouldn't want to practice loving-kindness meditation. You'd want to practice the distance first and your breathing mindfulness meditation.
1: Exactly. You just would like to get away, distance yourself from that individual, keep working with your breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity. And then what you might notice through eliminating that attachment is that three months, six months, a year in that you don't have anger, hatred, ill will. The reason why the anger, hatred, or wills arising is because of the craving-desire attachment. So if you can eliminate the craving-desire attachment, you might end up three months, six months, a year down the road, you don't even have anger for this person anymore because you've eliminated the attachment. So you might not even need to put them in your loving-kindness meditation.
2: Okay, thank you, sir, I understand. Um, Bruce asks a question on YouTube. He asks, there are people who get angry when you do not, don't believe what they believe as far as religion goes, at least here in the US. Teacher David, have you dealt with that as well from people of other relig- religions?
1: Um, surely, you know, at different times of my life, I've experienced that, but what you come to understand is that it's their craving, desire, attachment, that they are craving permanence, and they're wanting everyone to agree with them. And when you don't agree with them, it's almost like a fight to death that they want to fight you to try to get you to agree because their mind can only be happy if they have permanence, if they have agreement. So when you realize that that's what's going on with the person, then you just don't even get involved, right? If you're noticing that they're wanting you to believe what they believe and you're not interested in any beliefs whatsoever... You just choose to either change the topic or the subject or walk away from the conversation because it's not going to go anywhere. They don't understand that they're craving and it's really not your role necessarily, depending on the relationship. It's not your role to sit down and explain the Four Noble Truths and all these other teachings to them. So if you sat there and just were like, no, 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 I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to believe that. They're just going to fight more and fight more it's like a fight to the end of the death because that's the way an unenlightened mind works is it functions very much like an animal that it's going to fight you to death in order to get what it wants so when you understand that people are functioning through their craving anger and ignorance then you realize it's the wrong time to talk the five factors of well-spoken speech are that you're not interrupting people that's that time right that first factor of speaking at the right time the three aspects of that is that you don't interrupt people that you make sure your mind is prepared to be able to talk meaning you're calm and you're content that you're not agitated or irritated but the third aspect of that factor of the right time is making sure the person you're speaking with that their mind is prepared to talk so if somebody has craving anger and ignorance arising in their mind it's the wrong time to talk because anything that they talk about is going to come through their craving anger and ignorance so you would like to just move away from that perhaps or ignore it or change the topic to something else. Because as long as they keep functioning through their craving, anger, and ignorance, the conversation isn't going to be experienced in a wholesome way. It's going to lead to unwholesome results. And if you understand that with wisdom from the five factors of well-spoken speech, then you just uh, look for conversation that you're using all five factors. You and where you see the other person is really struggling, you might need to just end the conversation or redirect it to another topic or ignore it, or something of this nature, that it's really unwise to try to have that conversation with someone who's putting all that pressure to try to get you to agree, because the only way their mind's gonna be happy is if they get what they want. They need to get the objects of their affection, their craving needs to be fulfilled, and you know that you're not gonna give them that, so they're just gonna get angrier and angrier and angrier. Thank you, teacher
2: David. It appears that it's all the questions we have at this time
1: okay so this is everything that i had to share on this topic for our class but as i've mentioned a few times the book has a lot of details and lays it out really nicely there so you can have a relationship with god and he can show up in your life and help you see that he does exist Uh, he's not going to necessarily do that the moment that you let him know that you're open to that or even within a week or two. But over time, you might see that God makes his presence more known to you if that's what he chooses to do. But don't be attached to it. Don't be expecting it, right? If you would like to have a relationship, I've shared with you how you need to look at that and approach that. And if you're not interested in a relationship, you can do that as well. I can help you either way get to enlightenment. But in order to do that, you would need to be sure you don't have any anger, hatred, or will. And you also understand that God's not controlling things. So for someone like Joe was mentioning that he just doesn't have any thoughts about God at all, perhaps maybe he's atheist, then in that situation, then you don't have any of that to contend with. And as long as you don't have anger, hatred, and ill will, then you can just go forward and continue to cultivate the path and learning all the different facets of the path to enlightenment, understanding that your enlightenment is based on your own decisions, which even someone who has a relationship with God is going to need to understand that same thing as well. So perhaps this was helpful for you guys. If you have any questions on this, you're always welcome to post those in the Facebook group. You're always welcome to reach out by sending a private message and I will help you. You can ask questions in the online classes and you can even send a request to meet in person or here in Chiang Mai, or you can schedule online through the scheduling app where I'll meet you in Zoom, and I can help you with personal guidance. Whether it's about this topic of God or any other topics, you're always welcome to get personal guidance as you need that. So the next class is chapter 19. This chapter is titled The Difficult Human Existence, Sickness, Aging, and Death. This is where we're going to learn a bit about gotama buddha's life story and what motivated him to get to enlightenment and also what he ultimately discovered as part of his enlightenment and these three aspects of life sickness aging and death tend to be areas of life that we really struggle with and we have a really difficult time either with our own sickness aging and death or perhaps somebody that's around us when they're sick or aging, or they're dying. So not only am I going to share with you the life story of Gotama Buddha, but I'm going to share with you how to deal with these types of situations when either you or somebody close to you is experiencing sickness, aging, and death. And then this Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together. So you're welcome to join for that. And remember, that's an open session where not only do we meditate together, but you can ask any and all questions that you like. So thank you all for joining for today's class. We'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to
0: this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com.